The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning, Bethlehem. I can't express in kind of the appropriate words what a privilege it is for me to preach in this pulpit to this church. If I talk about it for too long, I think I'll break up and kind of have to get the tissues out. Suffice it to say, this place fundamentally changed me when I was a 15-year-old and somebody popped into my hand, Future Grace. Not exactly the book I'd give to a 15-year-old. Maybe I'd start with Don't Waste Your Life, but that's what I got. And I uh, was influenced and shaped by this place and all that you treasure and all that you love since then. And now here I am preaching in a room with that up on the wall. It's a tremendous, tremendous blessing. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Well, as you can see, we've got quite a passage before us this morning. It's a fascinating story. It's a little bit long, too. I'm not going to read it again. We're going to dip in and out as I go along. It's a fascinating story, but it's also a familiar story. As Scott read, did anything sort of ring any bells? Did you remember anything? Did it sound familiar? It should have. It's a lot like Acts 10 from last week, isn't it? And you may wonder, if I heard last week's sermon, do I need to stick around for today's? Yes. Maybe if you were here and you didn't pay attention, even more so. But Acts 11, essentially, right at the beginning, summarizes quite a bit of what we find in Acts 10. But Luke, the author of Acts, does more than just summarize. Luke tells his Acts 10 story again. We're in Acts 11. He tells that Acts 10 story again, but he doesn't tell it in exactly the same way. And he adds a new scene. And, and when we read these two scenes together, they tell us something that is both familiar and absolutely extraordinary. So listen to this. Acts 11 tells us, see if this rings any bells. Acts 11 tells us that the Gentiles received God's Spirit. God's Spirit descended on them. Acts 11 tells us that these Gentile Christians eagerly ate up the apostles' teaching. They gave their attention to the apostles' teaching. This should be ringing bells in our ears. Acts 11 tells us that these Gentiles were saved in large numbers, and it tells us that their very first instinct, like the first thing they do when they receive the gospel, is they show generosity to other Christians in need. What does that sound like? That sounds a lot like Pentecost, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound just like Pentecost? It sounds just like Acts 2. And that's Peter's, that's Luke's point. The Gentiles have had an experience that is just like what the Jews had in Acts 2. You know, uh, my kids have been starting to speak differently. I think it's Gen Z lingo. I've been trying to learn a little bit of it. They started to do this before we moved to Minnesota, so I can't blame you guys for this. Um, but they started to talk differently. So we'd, we'd be doing something, I'd say, man, I really like this pizza or this soccer game or what have you. And my kids, instead of saying, Dad, I feel the same way that you do, or Dad, I agree, or I concur. They actually never talk like that. 
But they would say, they would say, same. Your kids probably do this too, don't they? I was out last night. We were celebrating Chelsea Football Club's Champions League victory. I know all of you were watching that yesterday afternoon. We were out celebrating and we're eating pizza. And I said, man, I like celebrating together as a family. And my kids said, same. Your kids may, may do that too. That's kind of what Luke is doing in our passage today. It's what he wants us to see. You can almost hear him say, hey, Jewish Christians in Acts 2, they receive the Spirit, to which the Gentiles in Acts 11 say, same. Jewish Christians in Acts 2, they were converted in mass, in large numbers, to which the Gentiles in Acts 11 say, same. Jewish Christians in Acts 2, man, they gave their attention to the apostles' teaching for a considerable amount of time, to which the Gentiles in Acts 11 are saying, same. Jews in in Acts 2 were generous. Gentiles in Acts 11, same. That's what Luke wants us to see. The exact same thing that happened to Jewish Christians at the very beginning of the church has now happened to Gentiles here in Acts 11. That is fundamentally extraordinary. It's, It's an audacious thing for God to do. It's one of the biggest, most astounding, most controversial things that the early Christians claimed. The kind of primero, the numero uno controversial thing the early church said was that Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, was the Jewish Messiah. Well, Gentiles being included alongside of Jews, this was audacious claim number two. But Luke doesn't just want to make that point. He doesn't want to just tell us, hey, Bethlehem, Gentiles, they're in God's family just like Jews are. That's not just what Luke wants to say. He wants to teach us something about Gentile inclusion. He wants to teach us how to respond to it. He wants to teach us how we should feel about it. That, that is the purpose. It's the function. It's the direction that Acts 11 is leading us in. Acts 11 is meant to teach us how do we respond when God does something surprising. When God welcomes Gentiles into his family's family in the same way that he welcomes Jewish people. And to teach us this, Luke shows us this really beautiful picture of these early Christians, mostly Jewish Christians. That's where Christianity began. He shows us how they responded when God surprised them. It's a really beautiful picture. And then he says, let me commend their example to you. Christian, let me commend the example of these early Jewish Christians to you. So where are we going this morning? Acts 11 has two scenes. It's one big story with two scenes. In the first, Luke tells us how a group of nameless, anonymous Jewish Christians in Jerusalem responded to the surprise of the Gentile mission in Antioch. That's the first scene. We're going to zoom in on them. How did these early Jewish Christians respond to the gospel making inroads into Caesarea? And then in the second scene, the second half of our text, We're going to home in on this really special guy named Barnabas, another Jewish Christian from Jerusalem, 
And we're going to see how that guy responded to the surprise of the Gentile mission. And I'm telling you, this is a story that is full of encouragement. But it's convicting at the same time. So let's dive in. Scene number one. Make sure you have your Bibles open. We're going to dip in and look at places along the way. Scene number one. This is verses 1 through 18. Scene number one. We're in Jerusalem. That's where Peter, you'll remember, comes after returning from Caesarea. Caesarea was up the coast. It was Israel's major port city. Peter returns to Jerusalem. In the next scene, verses 19 through 30, we're going to be outside of Jewish territory. But for now, we're right here at the center of Jewish Christianity, Jerusalem. Peter returns, and he's immediately questioned by Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Immediately questioned. Okay, not not just questioned, was he He was criticized, wasn't he? They didn't just say, hey, what were you doing up there in Antioch? They said, why were you doing what you were doing in Antioch? Look at verse 2. Luke tells us that they criticized Peter and calls the group criticizing him the circumcision party. Those of the circumcision. This is a reference to Jewish Christians. Why call them the circumcision party? Well, circumcision was the distinguishing mark of Jewish people. It's what set them apart. It's what distinguished them from other people. And Luke calls them the circumcision party. But it wasn't just circumcision that set Jews off as God's people. It was also their laws, and especially laws about what they could eat and who they could eat with. These things were kind of, they created a boundary around Jews. They, they distinguished, hey, these are Jewish people over against everybody else. You know this. In the Bible story, there's two characters or two peoples. There's Jews and there's everybody else, right? And circumcision and food laws, these were the things that distinguished the Jewish people as God's family, as God's community. And it was Peter's apparent disregard for both things, for circumcision and for food laws that got him into trouble. Notice verse 3. Listen to what they say. You can, tell, you, you can almost feel their frustration. You, Peter, pointing at him, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. In other words, Peter, you've blurred the lines between God's people and everybody else. You've blurred the lines. What were you thinking? You know, on the most charitable reading, this criticism of Peter was rooted in the firm belief that Jews, Jewish people, Israel was God's city on a hill. It was rooted in the firm belief that they were distinct, a city on a hill, given God's laws so that they could emanate God's wisdom, God's light to the nations. They were God's special possession. They were his holy people. They were his priestly kingdom. And their mission, should they choose to accept it, which they didn't always do, was to follow God's ways, circumcision and food laws included, and 
This was really, really wonderful. If they did follow God's ways, if Israel did what God said and did it with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength, then the Bible tells us their light would emanate to the nations. It would attract the nations. And the nations would come to Israel's God and the world would be full of people who know and love Yahweh, who know and love God, just like God intended from the very beginning. So to people with convictions like this, Peter was one big compromiser. Here he is cutting corners, dimming the light, minimizing the differences, trying to be seeker-sensitive, trying to make it too easy for Gentiles to come to God. And you can imagine them admonishing Peter. Peter, how are you going to win the world if you're just like them? How are you going to do it? How are you going to win the world if you're just like them? In other words, they weren't criticizing Peter for evangelizing Gentiles. They weren't even surprised by God's desire to save Gentiles. Now, what surprised these Jewish critics and led to their criticism was that they expected that when God came and he did his new work, when he sent his Messiah, when he inaugurated his new covenant, they expected that their law would remain pretty much unchanged. Therefore, if Gentiles or Jews wanted in on what God was doing, then they would have to simply obey the law too. Or at least they'd have to be circumcised. And now here's Peter apparently telling Gentiles that God's laws could be safely set aside. Like Peter on the roof in Joppa, remember Peter up there? These Jews didn't realize just how much things would change when God sent his Messiah. They just didn't realize it. Just like Peter didn't. How many times did it take Peter to get it on that roof in Joppa? Did he get it the first time? Things got to happen to Peter in threes, don't they? Not once, not twice, but three times. So you can sort of understand, can't you, the, the, the criticism that's leveled against Peter. You can understand why these Jewish Christians would have been upset. That's the most charitable reading, I said, of their criticism. But sadly, I suspect that some of the criticism was rooted in something much more sinister wasn't just a misunderstanding of what God's new age would be, but we might say it was rooted in pride and prejudice. You see, over the years, the Jewish people, they'd begun to regard their status as God's people, as God's city on a hill. They'd begun to regard it as not something given them for the good of the nations, not something given to them so they could kind of generously share with other people, but rather as something that made them better than other people. They, they regarded their status as God's special people as something that they had earned, something that, of course, God would have given to them. They, they would have thought, we're God's people and you're not. Maybe added, na, 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 na. Or maybe not. I don't know how you'd say that in Hebrew. But for these circumcision and food laws, they weren't maintained to kind of draw the nations in. The laws weren't kept so that the nations would see, my goodness, 
What a wise God that nation of Israel had. No, for people like this, they maintain circumcision and food laws not to draw Gentiles in, but to say, look, you're different. You're on the outside. They wanted to insist by these laws how far away the Gentiles were from God's favor and at the same time how close they were. So for critics like this, Opposition to Peter wasn't so much rooted in theology as it was rooted in ethnocentrism. And something even more sinister, it was rooted in pride. What Peter did was wrong because Gentiles don't deserve God's favor like we do. That's ugly, isn't it? It's ugly. What they deserve not is God's salvation, but God's judgment. So, Peter's critics... They all agree that it's a scandal for Peter to do what he's done. Which is why they criticize him in verse 3. You have welcomed uncircumcised Gentiles into God's family, and then you sat around having supper with them. So, when Peter gets back from this little mission trip to Caesarea, he has an inbox full of angry emails. And his answer is one that we've seen already. This part, Peter's answer, verses 4 to 17, is the part of our chapter that kind of replays Acts chapter 10. And it's the heart of this first scene, Peter's response. Here in verses 4 to 17, Peter once more tells the story of that sheet full of animals that God had lowered. He once more tells about his reluctance to do what God had said. He reminds us of the vision Cornelius had in Caesarea to, hey, go get this guy in Joppa. He reminds us ever briefly about the sermon he had preached. But best of all, as Peter's answering these critics, they've criticized them. He's now answering. Best of all, he tells them, you wouldn't believe what happened while I was preaching. Peter tells them that the Spirit while he was preaching, descended on a room full of uncircumcised, unclean food-eating Gentiles. And God had, Peter insists, look at verse 17, God had given the same gift to them, to the Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's telling us, The Spirit fell on circumcised, clean, food-eating, law-abiding Jews at Pentecost. And it's the same Spirit, this is audacious, it's extraordinary, it's, it's scandalous, that same Spirit has now fallen on Cornelius' friends and family. And Peter concludes, look at the last part of verse 17. Peter concludes, who was I? Do you see this? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter knew a little something about standing in God's way, didn't he? Remember right in the middle of the Gospels? Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. You're right, Peter. You got it. Now I got to die. And Peter says, no, you don't. Remember this? We're like, Peter, just keep your mouth shut, man. I got to die. And and, and Peter says, no way. And And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So here we are, fast forward a few years, Peter experiences something that surprises him again, his heart has changed, he sees what God does, 
And he says to these Jewish critics, guys, who am I to stand in God's way? Who am I to stand in the way of what God wants to do? It is a fitting conclusion. After all, Peter has gone to great lengths to show his critics that he was just as skeptical as they were. He wants them to know, look, I wasn't like an early adopter. Like you, I was also skeptical. And what changed his mind, he he really wants us to see this, what changed his mind was the undeniable fact that God was at work and that God had done this. Did you catch that when Scott read the text? At every part of, uh, of Peter's narrative, he points to God's initiative. He, he's, he's basically saying, look, it's not me that made this initiative to the Gentiles. God was at work. So, so for instance, verse 5, when Peter talks about what happened, he describes a vision that he'd received. Verse 5, chapter 11, Peter receives a vision. It wasn't me. A vision came to me. Verse 7, Peter tells about a voice that he had heard from heaven. He's saying, look, I didn't take this initiative, but there was a voice, and it came from heaven. I heard it. A voice that addressed him three times. Verse 12, Peter tells about hearing the Spirit's voice. Do you see what Peter's doing? It wasn't me he's telling them. You're criticizing me for something God did. He hears the Spirit's voice telling him to go with Cornelius' men. Verse 15, Peter tells how the Spirit descended on the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. How did he know that? Well, Stephen preached last week from chapter 10, and you know the evidence given when the Spirit descended on the Gentiles, what they did? They started speaking in languages they hadn't learned. They started speaking in tongues. Now, in case any of Peter's Jewish Christian critics doubt his eyewitness testimony— he reminds them of something that I think is pretty interesting. Look at verse 12, right in the middle. In case they were kind of quick to dismiss Peter and say, no, you're, you're just off your rocker. You, you don't, you're making this up. Maybe you're hallucinating or you want this to be true. Peter reminds them, verse 12, right in the middle, that he was accompanied by six brothers. Do you see what he's doing there? There were six eyewitnesses along with me who can testify to what I've just told you. Which is to say, it was undeniably, incontrovertibly, unmistakably a Gentile Pentecost. And Peter says, can you believe it? And then follows that by saying, you'd best, because God did it and you do not want to stand in his way. Now, how did Peter's critics respond? It's the last part of this scene. Look at it. Verse 18, kind of highlighted by being placed at the end. Luke doesn't want us to miss it. And it's the new detail that sets this part off from what we read in chapter 10. It's the response to Peter's story. Notice verse 18. When they heard these things, that's the Jewish critics, they fell silent. They hear it. They hear the story. And what do they do? They fall silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads life. Do you see what they did? They hear the story. They can't deny that God's at work. And they respond precisely as they should. Luke wants us to see that. What do you do when God does something undeniable? 
You don't stand in his way. You praise him for it. God has done something that was absolutely surprising and impossible to deny. You can either praise him for it or you can stand in his way. It's really your choice. All right, scene number two. Verses 19 to 30. Scene number two. The second scene in this story. We're not in Jewish territory anymore. Notice verse 20. We're in this place called Antioch. Syrian Antioch. And it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Can you guess what the first largest city was? Let's see if you're out there and awake. First largest city in the Roman Empire. Come on, let me hear it. Rome, thank you. Anybody guess the second largest city? Alexandria. Come on, some seminary geeks of the front. Are you? No, I'm impressed. Third largest city, Antioch. And catch this, it's the second most important city in the book of Acts. The first being Jerusalem. Antioch is this important city because it will be the missionary sending hub in a way that Jerusalem will never, never be. Isn't that interesting? Antioch becomes, almost like what we think Jerusalem should have become, Antioch becomes it. This missionary sending hub. And Luke tells us, verse 19, that Jewish Christians fleeing persecution in Jerusalem after Stephen's martyrdom. Verse 19, they, they, they fled out of Jerusalem. The stones were flying at Stephen and they scatter. And they come to Antioch and they do something gutsy, bold. Something that could get them in a lot of trouble, that could get them killed just like Stephen. Verse 20, they share the gospel with Gentiles. Can you believe that? It's extraordinary. They just saw somebody in Jerusalem get stones thrown at his head because he acted in a way that Jewish people said you shouldn't act. Now these guys fleeing that persecution go up to Antioch and they start sharing the gospel. It's gutsy. Some of these brave missionaries, in fact, are from the same hometown that those persecutors of Stephen were from. They're from Cyrene, which Acts chapter 6, if you look at it later, tells us that's where some of Stephen's persecutors were from. Why did they take this brave step? You kind of want to know, why'd you do it? Did they have a rooftop vision too? Did did God lower a sheet and say, hey, eat? And they had their own Peter experience, maybe. We don't know. Maybe the, the news about what had happened to Peter spread around and it filled their hearts with courage. Kind of like how reading Acts does for our hearts, doesn't it? Or reading through gates of splendor or to the golden shore. You hear about things God has done and your heart kind of awakens and you say, yes, I can do that too. Maybe, maybe they had heard about what had happened to Peter. Maybe not. We don't know. But what we do know is that they boldly shared the gospel, not only with Jews. Notice the contrast. They didn't just share it with Jews, but with the Hellenists, which is to say Gentiles as well. They shared it with the Gentiles. And verse 21, look at the effect. Many believed. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. In fact, the size of the group is mentioned three times. Verse 21, 
great number. Verse 24, look at near the end of verse 24. A great many people. Verse 26, right in the middle. A great many people. Three times. I think Luke wants us to see something, don't you? Three times. He wants us to call to mind the exact same effect that the gospel had had in Jerusalem at Pentecost when a great many people had come to the Lord. Something around 3,000. So once again, Christians in Jerusalem, they hear about what God's doing among the Gentiles and they want to find out what's going on. Verse 22. So they send this guy named Barnabas. We know this one. He's a Jewish disciple. We've met him already. Remember Acts chapter 4 kind of briefly mentions him. He's the guy who sells his property and he gives the proceeds to people in need. You remember this? Or in Acts chapter 9, I like this one. People are skeptical of this guy named Paul, Saul, who comes to Jerusalem and says, hey, I'm a persecutor turned preacher. They're like, well, I'm not so sure. And remember, Barnabas vouches for him and says, come on, this guy's for real. And he vouches for, Peter, for Paul. We know as well that Barnabas was from Cyprus, that little island nation, which according to verse 20 is actually the same place as some of these Antioch evangelists are from. Maybe Barnabas was sent because he knew these guys. Hey, your friends are up in Antioch doing something. Go find out what it is. So Barnabas arrives in Antioch. Look at verse 23. And he sees what is happening for what it is. It, it, It doesn't even take him any time. He sees and he describes it as, this is the grace of God at work. You see that? He gets up to Antioch. There's Jewish converts, and Barnabas immediately sees God's hand in this. And better than that, look at verse 23 again. Look at Barnabas' response. It's kind of a pretty little word, isn't it? He's glad. He's glad. He sees what God's doing, and he's glad. He's glad that Gentiles get to experience the goodness of the gospel. And he jumps right in. He's glad, and then verse 23 tells us, so he exhorts them. He shares a little devotional with them. He exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You know, we're already feeling this way about him. So we're not surprised when Luke says in verse 24, for he was a good man. Kind of feel that way about him already, don't you? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. It's the only place in Acts where Luke calls somebody good. It's high praise and it's well-deserved. Barnabas is not only good, full of the Holy Spirit, but he's fruitful too. Notice the end of verse 24. As a result of his ministry, a great many people were added to the Lord. So he's gifted. But I find it extraordinary what Barnabas does next. He cares so much for the spiritual well-being of these new converts that he's willing to admit that they need more than what he's able to give to them. Cares so much for their spiritual well-being. Guys, this doesn't happen in ministry very often. If I lead a revival and a bunch of people come to the Lord, the next thing I'm doing is, not me, but somebody who's, different than me, would be, all right, I'm on YouTube. I'm kind of 
starting my own Jared Compton Ministries, you know? Barnabas says, no, these guys need something I can't give them. So what does he do? Verse 25, he calls for backup. Barnabas goes to Tarsus. It's a city northwest of Antioch in Turkey. And he gets Paul, who'd been ministering in his hometown of Tarsus since the end of Acts 9. It's the beginning of a wonderful partnership. And they both return to Antioch, where, where, verse 26 tells us, they teach the church. Do you see this? They teach the church for a whole year. And the group's identity after this year is no longer defined ethnically. Did you catch this at the end of verse 26? They're not called Jews. They're not called Gentiles. Now they're simply called Christians. That's, where we, that's our origin story right there. That's how we got that name. They're not just called Jews. They're not just called Gentiles. They're not called Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Take out the hyphen. Take out the ethnic identity. They're just called Christians. Now, the story ends, verses 27 through 30, tells us a, this interesting story about this prophet who's sent down from Jerusalem, comes to Antioch, and he talks about a coming famine. Luke wants us to see, kind of most importantly, how these Christians respond to this news. Their very first instinct. Notice this. Upon hearing a prophecy about potential need is to take a collection for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. That's extraordinary, isn't it? They know you have been generous in sharing the gospel with us, of course, We're going to help you. Of course, we'll give you our material possessions. What more can we do? Their very first instinct is generosity, which is just like the instinct of the early Christians in Acts chapter 2. When they were saved, when they became Christians, they generously shared with one another. Again, in this scene, Luke shows us that God, can't miss this, God has done something marvelous, surprising. He poured out his spirit on Gentiles just like he'd poured it out on Jewish people. You can oppose it for sure, but if you do, note, mark this, you'll be standing in God's way. Or with Barnabas, you can gladly engage in God's mission. It's really up to you. That's Luke's story What does it mean for us? Let me conclude with this. Let me summarize and then talk about a line, a direction of application. So Luke shows us that God did something surprising in the early days of the church. He saved Gentiles as Gentiles. You don't have to become a Jew in order to be invited into God's family. Yes, of course, don't miss this. Yes, of course, Gentiles had to repent of their sins. That's not the issue. Remember verse 18? The Jewish Christians say, wow, God's given them the gift of repentance. Yes, Gentiles have to repent of their sins, but they don't have to become Jews. They don't have to obey the food laws. They don't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to follow the Jewish law. Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to see, this is great news for most of us, he wants us to see that there's no ethnic 
boundary that a person has to cross in order to be invited into God's family. There's no ethnic boundary. It doesn't matter, folks, who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. In, in the earliest days of the Christian movement, the worst thing you could be is a Gentile. If that boundary can be crossed, what other boundary is standing in God's way? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. Luke is telling us if you simply believe, that's the ticket, that's the border you have to cross. If you believe in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, He gave his life for you. You see that. You savor it. You treasure it. You say, I need that. If you do that, he says, you're in. You're in God's family. That's it. It's that simple. Look to Jesus. Accept him. Believe. Turn to him. And you're a member of his family. That's extraordinary. Luke tells us that he wants us to see that. It's surprising. Look, if you're here, just a little side. If you're here, and you think there must be a giant gap between all the people in this room who come every Sunday and, man, they look sharp. They have well-behaved kids for 45 minutes. And you say, I could never be like people like that. You don't have to be. The gospel is calling to you and Jesus is saying, simply believe, accept, receive what I've done for you. I'll change you. You don't have to change yourself. You don't have to cross any other border other than simply confessing your need for Jesus. But Luke doesn't just want to show us that. It's not just the surprise of the Gentile mission. He wants to teach us how do you respond when God does stuff that's surprising. That's why Luke put Acts 11 in his book. He wants us to see the magnanimity. Do you know this word? The magnanimity, the large, big-heartedness of these early Jewish Christians who saw what God did and they glorified God. He he wants you to see it and say, man, that that is beautiful. That's so Christ-like. That's spirit-empowered. Look what they did. They saw this thing. They were surprised, but they submitted and they said, Lord, we praise you. And beyond that, they, they didn't just praise the Lord, but they were glad, like super excited that Gentiles got to experience the goodness of the gospel too. Do you ever feel that way? Man, I've got something so good. I, there's got to be somebody else out there that needs to experience this good thing that I've got. Luke says, don't, don't just pass over that. They were glad. Barnabas was glad for the Gentiles to experience Jesus' goodness. And even beyond that, Luke shows us that look what these early Jewish Christians did. They didn't just say, Lord, I praise you for this. That's marvelous. I'm glad about it. Remember what Barnabas does? He dives right in. He jumps right into the ministry. He sees it going on. He says, God's at work. I want a part of that. And he does. So if you're looking for the good guys in Luke's story, you find them. Guys meant to be highlighted for us. You find them. And these unnamed Jewish Christians who hear Peter's story and they don't resist and they submit and they say, God's in this. And you find it in this wonderful guy named Barnabas who doesn't begrudge God's mercy, but he's glad for it. He's eager to see it multiplied. So let me conclude with this final application. Are there places where we can identify with these Jewish Christians 
Maybe where we've misunderstood the Bible and that's causing us to stand in God's way. Maybe. Maybe that's true. Are we supposed to identify with these Jewish Christians who kind of had prejudice in their hearts and that kept them from responding with glad hearts to what God was doing? Maybe, maybe that's it. But I think even more simply than that is this call. God's Gentile mission, it doesn't really surprise us anymore, does it? We're kind of, we've made our peace with it. Most of us are Gentiles. We think, yeah, that's how it should be. But the response of these early Jewish Christians is still exemplary for us, isn't it? It's still held out as a model for us. There's still a mission that God's doing. It may not be surprising anymore, not all the time, but it's still there. And he's saying, look at how spirit-empowered people respond to what God is doing. They eagerly say, of course I'll jump in. I'll praise you for it, God. I'll pray about it. I'll, I'll be glad about it. I'll engage in it. So as I thought of this this week, I thought, man, how often am I indifferent to the joy of my neighbor? I got something so good that's been given to me so generously by God. Why am I indifferent? I'm not glad always like Barnabas. So I said, Spirit, and I want you to say, Spirit, stir that up in me. Help me to feel the same way that Barnabas did. Maybe we're not indifferent, but we just very infrequently pray or we're half-hearted in our evangelism. You know this. There's a mission that God's engaged in and he's holding out these beautiful examples to us. That's what biblical history does. It teaches us. And he's saying, I want you, by God's Spirit, to emulate what these early Jewish Christians did. By my Spirit and for my glory and for your neighbor's good. May God... Help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this really wonderful story kind of tucked into the middle of Acts where you show us something beautiful and utterly convicting. Stir our hearts. Yes, for mission to the nations and reaching the unreached. Don't let that stop. Thank you for what Bethlehem does, but stir our hearts to reach our neighbors our co-workers, our family, those proximate to us. Stir us up so that we are eager for them to experience the good that you've so generously given to us. Forgive us for where we've fallen short. Give us energy and grace to take a step, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.